Here's the big question. Quick in the game podcast. If you're looking to change your family tree, redefine an industry, reach new limits, or live an unconventional life, how are, how are you setting yourself up to guarantee this will happen? This podcast is going to cut through all the cliche, cookie cutter, and conventional recommendations about finance, business, and life, and give you the tips you need to get the outcomes you want while playing your game. I'm Dan Nicholson, and this is, is, is the Rigging the Game podcast. Rigging the Game Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Rigging the Game podcast. Today's special guest is Alan Anderson. Alan Anderson is a leadership expert with the Shandell Group and a longtime personal friend of mine. Uh, we met uh, early in the, the days of my business when Alan was uh, CEO, COO, Chief Operating Officer of a uh, large franchisor. And uh, at some point in that journey as COO, he recognized that really where his passion was was in the area of, of uh, leadership. So he made a hard pivot into what what he's now doing today, and uh, we really uh, dig deep into uh, the lessons that, that he's learned along the way. Hope you enjoy. Uh, welcome to the Reading the Game podcast. I've got Alan Anderson here with me today, longtime friend, managing director of the Shandell Group, which is a awesome uh, executive leadership group. And uh, you know, the point of this podcast is to give you two to three actionable takeaways straight out of the gate that you can implement right away so that you can rig the game to win, so you can play, uh, play your style, whatever that may be, in life and business, so that you get the outcomes that you want, whatever those may be. So uh, let's just jump right into it, Alan. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, if you don't mind, why don't, you, why don't we just start with, uh, let's talk about who you are. What ultimately led you to become a kick-ass executive leadership coach? Such a pleasure to be here. And the answer to that is very much like a handful of great leaders I know. It was accidental. <laughs> like, you know, some people do this uh, proactively and strategically. And if I'm honest, uh, for me, that's not my story. And so I'm super grateful. I think there's not a day that goes by that there's not gratitude. Um, we've known each other now pushing almost a decade and um, you've seen me through some of the sick and, sick and thin. And um, I really love the notion that it's not about the cards you're dealt, it's how you play that hand. Right. And I think, unfortunately, we have a society that is very quick to blame, very quick to pass the buck, very quick to say, woe is me. Not everybody, by any means. And, and, and this is across the board. This isn't just North America. From my origin story, uh, I'm going to take us back to the early 1900s, uh, because this actually has a very practical implication to us today, now in um, early, mid-2000s here. And my father's grandparents came to Seattle from Norway. And very practically speaking, the implication was that his parents raised him with this work hard, you're hurt, just rub some dirt in it, oh, get right. after it, just push. Yeah. Um, and so then when I turned seven or eight or so, my father took me fishing and said, son, you're an Anderson S-E-N. That means three things. You work hard, you have a firm handshake, and you drink black coffee. <laughs> and, you know, if you think about it, that's actually not bad advice. But that's actually not great advice for a seven or eight-year-old. Because it's like, sure. you know, what do, what do I do with that? Um, so that piece is going on in my story. And then there's another puzzle piece that when, when we were growing up, there was no such thing as um, 
diagnoses with kids or diagnoses with kids that had uh, different wiring uh, differences or, or, or um, hardships. And so for me, uh, not knowing until much later in life that I basically dealt with ADD. Mm. Uh, that wasn't called ADD when I was growing up. That was sure. called repeat-a-grade. <laughs> I did that, and that sucked. And so I, I, I learned pretty quickly that the way to progress was to to build relationships with people, and, and particularly with teachers, and, and, and how to, uh, even going back to Carnegie, win friends and influence people, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's an element where, for me, I had this, really one narrative was really work hard, push hard, get after it. Mm -hmm. uh, and on the other side, I had a very unfocused mindset. I had a very uh, unfocused um, viewpoint, I think, in a lot of ways. And so <clears throat> I didn't really know what to do with that until, you know, you, you go through elementary school and middle school and high school, and you get to the point where people, you get close to college and people are like, what are you going to do? And I, and I remember having a few moments of panic where it's like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. I, I literally don't know what I'm going to do. And I would say, fortunately, now that we made it through this hard time, I, I actually met my, my bride-to-be at the end of high school. Yeah. And so not knowing what I was going to do, started the local community college. Uh, and my wife and I started dating toward the end of that. And um, I actually grew up in a small place called Olympia, Washington. It's about an hour south of Seattle. And you basically had to be an idiot not to be able to get a state job. <laughs> so practically speaking, halfway through college, somebody said, hey, I can get you a job with the state. You're going to make 30 grand a year as an early 20s guy. You can, you've been dating this gal for a while. You can get married. And I thought, brilliant, 30 grand a year, all these things. So very reactive. If there's a narrative in this story, I was far more reactive than I was proactive. Mm -hmm. And yet I had this weird paradox of, I was supposed to work hard. I, I was supposed to push hard, but I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know how that mm. was supposed to play out. And so for me, uh, putting a cherry on top of the story is that now, uh, you know, nearly 20 years later, practically speaking, I get to share with clients and friends and community members and, and neighbors and those things. Next to faith and family, by far the best things that happened to us were foreclosure on our first home when I got laid off in the Great Recession. Uh, and then a few years later, I got fired from what I thought was a dream job, a consulting job. And these became a catalyst for me, uh, now what I call the hurt so good moment, that put things in perspective that says, wait a minute. Yeah. It's not as helpful to be reactive. I need to be proactive. Mm -hmm. And so instead of just reacting to opportunities and reacting to things, I need to pause and say, what does the long game look like? That's part of the reason I love the, the title of even this podcast, Dan, is that when we think about rigging the game, I can actually do that successfully mm -hmm. when I do two things, define what success looks like and then define what the, my game is. Right. Your game is different from my game, but there's overlapping principles. Right. And so this is where we can collaborate. This is where we can help one another. And I think that's what my story helped me realize. And so um, now, years later, uh, in our leadership development firm, we are privileged to work with executives and startups, and uh, our largest client is uh, just over 5,000 employees, nearly a billion in revenue, and our, our smallest client is 20 employees, and they're 30 million in revenue, and, and the spectrum in between, because what is the common denominator between a large organization, an enterprise-level organization, and a startup is leadership. You need to lead, and I think for me personally, I had to learn that the hard way, and so for me now, 
I've defined what success looks like. I've defined what the long game looks like. And that's, that's really my story in a nutshell. So, so I always say that I've been uh, punched in the face. Most of my lessons uh, I've learned from being punched in the face, not mm -hmm. necessarily literally, but yeah. uh, more in a figurative sense. And so, you know, in hearing your story of kind of struggling with trying to reconcile the things that we're told we're supposed to be from our, our parents or sort of the lineage with uh, kind of ADD and trying to just work through all that. And, and then you've got uh, this, this uh, lady that you've met and you're trying to figure out how to make all that work. How did you then ultimately, and this is a question I get a lot from a lot of folks, is how do you ultimately then define what success looks like? How do you step back? What was the process that you went through? Or maybe it wasn't a process necessarily to, to ultimately kind of reconcile everything and figure out okay, this is, this is what success is going to look like for me. Yeah, great question. <clears throat> I think it starts with a few things. And I, I'm going to share what I recommend individuals and teams do now when they're working to understand this. For me, I had to figure this out. I, I basically had a midlife crisis in my early 30s to figure all my junk out. And so not only did I have to figure out the answer to the question you just asked for myself, but my bride, we had a couple of kids in the process. So, so that's much more difficult and, and certainly can be done. But at the end of the day, I had to prioritize that. If I could start fresh, what, I, what I'm working to teach my three kids now is, okay, if we're going to work to be more proactive than we are reactive, certainly we're going to have to react to things. But we actually have control to be more proactive than we do reactive. It really comes down to four key areas. You need to, you need to define what your primary purpose is. And maybe that changes based on life stage and so on and so forth, but, but see is there a, a primary purpose you feel. Then you determine your values. What is your value system? You could even call that behaviors. Once you figure out your purpose and your values, then you, you pause and you look out. You look at the long game and say, what's my vision? What, what is possible? What do I want to accomplish? What am I uniquely wired to add value and so that I can pursue and help others along the way? And finally, then you start to reverse engineer your mission. So it goes, Clarify your purpose, determine your values, look at your vision, and start to develop that mission. And that framework actually starts to help you day in and day out. And, and essentially what it lets you do is be more proactive than reactive. Because once you've clarified where you want to go, once you've clarified your values, it helps me know when I partner with people, who I'm friends with, how I participate in various meetings and networking groups, and what businesses I, I mean, we've actually turned businesses away because they don't have a similar alignment of values. And so just because somebody can give you money doesn't mean you should accept that. Mm -hmm. You need to align with somebody that is gonna have that shared purpose, values, vision, mission. Admittedly, when I start working with somebody, we start working with the team, do I come up with that statement as abruptly, okay, tell me your purpose, values, vision? No, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. But once you've clarified that, then you can start to think through okay, I, I see this, they're, they're telling me about this deal they made that was pretty shady and they had to, you know, screw over a few people in the process or do different things. Like that helps you know, you know what, this isn't going to be a helpful long-term long -term benefit. Yeah. So it's really determining that long game. And, and by, by doing, you can do that by clarifying your purpose, by vision, mission. And that is agnostic, whether you're an individual or an organization. I mean, you can be a CEO and you need to do that for yeah. your executive team. Yeah, there's a couple things you just said, and I want to dig into this, to the four steps that you just uh, lined out in terms of purpose, values, vision, mission. 
I'm gonna come back to that. But you made a comment about in the process of kind of taking on clients that sometimes you hear something that is questionable or sketchy and that's a, a moment of pause, mm -hmm. right? That's a pretty stoic, I, I would suggest that's a pretty uh, stoic mindset to be able to, to pause uh, in that moment. Maybe you could kind of speak more into into that. Absolutely. Uh, how one develops that. That's, that sounds like a skill to me to some extent. Like if you're just grinding and I got to take on clients and it's really hard to then like key in on these issues. So maybe we could, I want to hear more about kind of how you coach people on sussing out clients. Yeah. And then let's come back to this. <clears throat> I have a preconceived notion or we could even say presupposition if we're going to get super philosophical super philosophical here i believe you're either growing or you're dying and so that fundamental reality means that everything we're doing really is a muscle to be exercised so that idea or that skill that you're talking about assessing out if somebody the right person or not it is a muscle and that muscle can atrophy and be super weak or it can be really strong and for me i had to learn that one the hard way so my partner uh, this would this would have been early mid 2015, and there was this client that didn't quite fit the mold of an ideal client for us. But we were um, I had just joined Shondell Group. We had just started getting things going, and I was I was pretty money hungry. And I talked to my partner, and she said, "Look, when you when you work with an organization and you go in mid uh, mid level, and you're not starting with the senior executive team." What happens is you may do some good work, but it may not actually pan out because there's not buy-in, uh, you know, particularly from senior leadership. And so I said, I know I get that, but these guys seem squared away. I, I think we've got a great plan. And she said, okay, I trust you, go for it. And what happened is we went in, we did the work, and it was super disheveled, very disorganized. They weren't as ready as they thought they were. And so for me, practically, um, not only did we essentially not charge for that, which, you know, there's a lot of sunk cost in that, um, but they walked away with a bad taste in their mouth. Yep. And so who gets blamed for that? Me. Yep. And so what you've really got to do is it's, it's pretty simple to help suss this out. So I think this will be, I guess we continue with this, this uh, mental framework of it's a muscle to be exercised. Um, you basically have three things that you need to clarify. And I've used this general rule of thumb, both personally and professionally when I'm working with people or I'm trying to gauge a, a offline personal relationship, I have to figure out if somebody ready, willing, and able to engage at the level that I want to engage. Again, personally or professionally. So for me, when I'm, I'm assessing that out with somebody, I, I ask, okay, are they actually ready to engage right now? Um, are they willing to do the hard work? And then are they able, can they, can they pay the funds or they can invest the time or do they have the buy-in? So for me, that's the Maybe it's not the secret ingredient. I mean, that's part of the reason I love that concept of ready, willing, and able. We've all heard that before, yep. but we're using that in the framework of how do I? I mean, we're 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 making another assumption here with this podcast. You have people that are looking to grow in their current stage of life from where they're at to where they want to be. So we're not having people that are just trying to check off the box or fill time. You have high-performing professionals and people that want to grow participating in this. And so practically speaking, we need a framework or we need a reference point to say, am I participating with like-minded people? You know, there was that old study that said you're going to be the sum total 
of the five people you hang out with, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I think Charlie, Charlie Tremendous Jones said the difference between who you are today and who you'll be in five years are the people you hang out with and the books you read. So, so there's clearly a reality here that I need to partner with personally and professionally people that are the, uh, the like-minded as me and want to go where I want to go. Even if that's just personal, professional growth doesn't really matter. For me, I verify, are they ready? Are they willing and able? Yeah, I think there's a couple things that are key takeaways for, for the listeners out there. One is sort of honing, and, and edit me if I, I misunderstood this, but one is sort of honing a principle around how do we onboard clients. And, and you're talking in the context of, of your leadership organization, but really I think it could apply to any right. organization, which is in, in your contextual framework, are they ready, willing, and able? And also within layered over the top of all that is that are they actually like-minded? Yes. And that almost becomes a checklist that, that when you're doing the sales call, you know, and like, okay, are they like-minded? Yes. Uh, are they ready? Are they willing? Are they able? And if you say no, I would assume to any one of these, then that's a disqualifier. Yes, absolutely. And, and you need to figure out how to exercise the next muscle of tactfulness and say, this was so great. I'm so grateful for our time together. It was awesome to meet you. Based on this conversation or based on our discovery process, I realize right now we're actually not equipped to help serve you in the way that we would like. This isn't going to work, but let me refer you to this person or that person or the other person. And this sort of becomes a lead domino to some extent of, okay, we bring on clients. We need them to meet a certain criteria if we're going to win the game. That's right. Back to the whole yeah. idea of this concept. And uh, if you define winning the game as just making money, then maybe you're taking on anybody. Although we know that someone who's not a good fit intuitively probably is going to blow up things later. Um, but we have to sort of start to shape this contextual framework or set of principles that tie back to winning the game for us. So maybe to bring this back to your four principles of purpose, values, vision, mission, like-minded kind of feels like those are the concept of someone being like-minded kind of. Absolutely. Those, those like might be the ingredients mm. of that, that I framework of like-minded, right? And I think, you and I probably have some philosophical differences. You and I probably see things differently. We maybe even have some value differences, but not much. Mm -hmm. And if anything, when you and I have engaged, both personally and professionally, which we've done both, we, we figure out, and I think this is the next maybe big picture piece is, I have to figure out, and again, this goes to personal and professional, I have to figure out how do I add more value to Instagree CPAs or to Dan Nicholson than I take in return. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that reality helps me figure out if we're like-minded, if there can be a, my, my, if I had to summarize a, a business philosophy for me, I would say we are not about the transactional exchange. We are all about the relational exercise. Because when you look at the future and you see the way the market is going and we're automating and, and we've got all these different pieces, the way that I can add value, the thing I can do that no computer or robot can do yet is be empathetic, is can, can read nonverbals as good as I can with the confidence that I can, that can um, share an experience. So I think there's an element where that overarching theme here is I need to add more value to you than I take in return. And I, and I, I, I promise you, having lived antithetical to this for so long, very accidentally, but I didn't realize that 
when I started and where I came across this concept was in a great book called The Go-Giver by Bob Berg and John David Mann, and, and they've actually got a whole series now of Go-Givers. I highly recommend it. Very practically speaking, when I worked to start, I think I read that book in 2009 or 2010, just on the precipice of our hard times, it shifted my mindset. It was a paradigm shift to, to start looking and figuring out how do I add more value. In fact, actually, if you'll remember this, one of our first lunch meetings when we were actually trying to figure out and, and you were just getting this from going our my or previous organization was trying to figure out do we work with you um and so we had you know my ceo said hey meet with dan nicholson <clears throat> a good chunk of our conversation at lunch we actually talked personal story and i think there was an element where for me i was really testing the waters of what is it like if I'm a little bit more personal than I might normally be, or a little bit more vulnerable, or a little bit more transparent. And now a decade later, that's paid dividends because it's helped me, it increases the likelihood of participating with people that are not gonna be like-minded. Rarely am I gonna tell you out of the gate, when I first meet you, I'm not like you. Let's, you know, that doesn't work that way. We're usually very kind, we're very uh, tactful, we, we say all the right things, but then it's over time we start to realize, oh, we don't, we don't look at things the same way. We, we don't share the same values. So we need to take that principle and apply it to our personal life or our professional life and figure out, okay, how can I add more value? And that starts to, to help me very quickly see, okay, like-minded, helps me see, you know, purpose, values, vision, mission of myself, helps me see ready, willing, able. It helps me start to see these common themes and, and starts to tie them together much like a thousand piece puzzle, right? I mean, a, a puzzle, a thousand piece puzzle is not complete. Even if one, even if you have 999 puzzle pieces, you have just one missing, it's not a complete picture. We need that, that big picture. We need all the pieces. I love the concept of providing more value than, than it's taken. To some extent, that's cerebral. Sure. Or like there's a gut check element to it. But what would you say to someone who's like, okay, I get that. I get the concept. I need to provide more value than it's taken. How do I, how do I really assess whether or not I'm doing that? And 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 then how do I assess if my team, if I'm running yes. a company with multiple people, right? Yeah. Some extent it goes from you to several people. How do I really assess if an individual are providing more value, but also how how do I assess if my company is providing more value than it's sort of taken from from our clients or from the community? Yeah, this is where it's a little bit counterintuitive, and this is a little bit of a dance here. And, I, and I'm, I'm such a, it's so frustrating to me when somebody asks a question and then they don't answer. So I'm going to answer the question. There's more layers here, so I'll follow your lead on, on where we go with this. But the counterintuitive piece is, on one hand, I have to go internal first. I have to look at myself or my organization. I need to know our strengths and our potential blind spots. Okay, so when, once I figure out our core strengths and our potential blind spots, then that lets me start to tease out what are my uncommon advantages or what are my what's my unique value proposition okay then once i figure that out then that helps me start to determine what the long game looks like and therefore then we can rig the game so i've figured out my strengths and potential blind spots i figured out what are my uh you know what's my unique value proposition let's call it that and then what does the long game actually look like for me then i can actually start to determine that now the other side of that and, and this is where uh, my free market capitalistic mindset comes in. The, the market dictates value, right? So at the end of the day, if, if 
if somebody sees value in your service or product and they're willing to pay X fee for that, then you essentially have that because you have that, that market dictating that value. So you've got to figure out, once you clarify your strengths and blind spots, your, your unique value proposition, and then what the long game looks like, you then need to look at the market and say, where can I disproportionately add value in the market to clients or to you know, prospect clients or different things like that? And that starts to help us clarify and essentially stay on this, this path. Now, this is my last point on this, this notion here. The thing that, that is implied in, in all the things we've covered so far is time. We are an impatient society. I, I don't have, I, usually each year, um, at least for the last, say, eight, eight to nine years, I've, I've basically chosen a word or a phrase to be kind of my anchoring word for the year. And I remember thinking um, one year I had patience and perseverance where it was my key phrase, essentially. And, and I was speaking with my wife uh, a few months ago, and I was like, I think actually patience and perseverance is actually supposed to be my decade theme. Because in reality, the implied thing of time here, I don't spend the time to figure out my strengths and blind spots. I don't spend the time to figure out where I can uniquely add more value. I don't spend the time to actually think about the long game. I, I, I love asking this question, especially if I'm working with an individual or a high-performing team. I'll say, how many hours are in the week? And most people don't know there's 160 hours in the week, and therefore they've not proactively used that time. Uh, the other question I love asking is, when's the last time you, you updated your eulogy much much more wrote it. Most of us haven't done that. We, right. we haven't actually thought about the long game because why? We don't have time. I'm running from work to pick up the kids from daycare to go to jujitsu to you know all the different things. Practically speaking, I need to slow down and take the time to clarify this idea of okay, I know my strengths blind spots. I know my unique value proposition. I know what the long game looks like for me. I know in the market, this is our particular niche or this is our particular um, target audience. And then I can pursue that. And that actually helps me. It starts to almost be a self-fulfilling prophecy of I align myself people that are closer to ready, willing, and able. I align, I start to align with people that have a shared purpose, size, vision, mission, so that it, it, it turns down a lot of the external noise that is not going to be helpful. It's, it's almost like when you get a lead of a potential client that's been trying to, like, I want to work with you, but then this comes up. And after we get this resolved, then we'll work together. And then you follow up, and, and next thing you know, you're 12 months, you're 18 months, 24 months in, and it's always the next excuse versus from the front end. If they, if, if they weren't originally ready, willing, and able, I should have just said, let's pause. If we've not connected in six months, I'll follow up with you. And that saves a lot of time and energy and effort that I could repurpose into the right vein. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think when you're when you're looking at kind of the gut check of am I providing more value than, than it's taken, usually I find that, that folks are focused on a correlative indicator yeah. Yeah. rather than the causation indicator. So causation, like there's a there's a almost one for one interaction. If you, I I slapped you in the face and it hurt. Like I can directly trace like the fact that I had pain in my face from when I got slapped versus correlation. It's like something happened. That's right. And maybe it's related or maybe it's just a coincidence. And so I think in the kind of more value uh, than is than is uh, taken sort of uh, context, uh, most folks are playing the short game because they're back to the sort of time. Yeah. And so their indicator is client satisfaction. 
and even more specifically, because most aren't actually measuring client satisfaction, like specifically asking their clients, is did I get fired or did I not get fired? And that's sort of their measure of, am I providing more value than is taken? Yeah. But that's not necessarily causation. That, that maybe in most instances is correlation in the sense that maybe the client just doesn't need to work with you anymore. That's right. Maybe they don't have the budget or maybe they hired someone internally. Or there's all these other indicators yeah. where they moved or uh, they're shifting the focus of their business. And so you're getting fired for, or they're moving on for reasons that aren't necessarily value specific. Yeah. But you have to, if I'm understanding kind of what you're saying, dig a little deeper. This value assessment uh, is an internal, needs to start internally. And then kind of the think, huge takeaway from what you shared is thinking through what is your uncommon advantage. I really yeah. like that, that thought process. The un, that sort of is a almost similar to the idea of asymmetric risk, which is, how do we put ourselves in a position where we're uh, the upside is so much greater than the downside? Yeah. yeah. Our, is it fair to sort of draw that parallel? Absolutely. That our uncommon advantage is kind of similar, where our upside is because of our unique skills, our upside is so much greater than our. You our nailed downside. it. The, the way I say that, and and um, it is absolutely the same concept here. Is just there's a disproportionate return. Right, you're 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 essentially setting things up in your favor. You're rigging the game, and so to do that, we simply have not slowed down enough. And and so as I, if we can take the time and figure out that disproportionate value, we can add that disproportionate, You know, because there's certain things that are easier for me to do than they are you, and vice versa. And that lets us actually start to collaborate. And instead of me trying to do everything and have this scarcity mindset instead it says i need to partner with the right people it's part of the reason when somebody needs a cpa firm it's like automatically instant degree like just i already know i already know our, our uh, financial i know our legal I, I know all these things because i know you're going to knock it out of the park in this discipline way more than i ever could and 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 that's exactly what we're talking about there's a disproportionate advantage that you have well let's let's circle back now to the kind of four steps that you you lined out and starting with primary purpose i think where folks kind of get hung up in things like this and i'll include myself is like okay well how do i figure that out what's the step give me the five steps or the three steps or give me some circle sheet where i can uh figure out primary purpose so how do you how does someone maybe in a possible couple sentences how how would someone go about if they're sort of like, I don't know what my primary purpose is, how would they figure that out? Yeah, there's certainly a number of great books out there. Um, and I think what we should do is I would love, uh, I think I would love to provide some of these resources that I'm going to offer up in just a moment, because in 2009 and 10 and 11 and 12, I wish I had these things. I didn't have, um, I didn't have the mentors i didn't have people speaking into this it felt like just gritted out right so uh, i think i think the first step is this is where uh, when we when it starts to come back to your purpose there is a there's an exercise that we have and it's adapted from an old zig ziglar uh exercise that he used to do where essentially we're looking at the eight key areas of life we're looking at uh, friends and family and financial and vocation and spiritual and mind and body and, and we're actually going to rate ourselves on that and say okay how like as a as an experiential human 
how am I doing? And then from that, that starts to help us have some data and awareness and we can start to ask some questions because the key to clarifying purpose and values, vision and mission is basically asking the right questions. And so you, you, you either need to partner with somebody that can help you do that or uh, certainly there's some great books out there that we can, uh, that we can recommend and we can link in the show notes. Um, but I think, I think what it comes back to is if you can create, you, you have to make it a priority because this is usually not done. We're talking about big, big picture, uh, long-term things here that we need to prioritize time and we need to prioritize thought process. So I think that's where um, it comes back to set, uh, making this a priority, setting aside the time and just start working away at it. Certainly this is not, and I, um, I appreciate you highlighting this question. I don't want anybody to think that they should be able to say, I'm going to take a, a vacation day from work and then just pull away and think about this and then come out with a, like, this is an iterative process. So, um, so certainly we, we, I'd love to provide some resources that folks could download. We'll, uh, definitely appreciate that. And we'll make that available on our, in the show notes. So that's, that's awesome. And it sounds like those worksheets would kind of help work someone work through exactly right. their purpose, their values, vision, mission. Yep. Maybe to ask a really dense question, uh, why, why should someone put aside the time to do this? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, I'm going to give a short response and then I'm going to share what I see as the market is, is moving and growing and adapting to. The short side of it is you and I are fortunate to work in industries and work with organizations that we love. Part of that is you had to go start your own organization that you love. Yeah. Uh, and for me, I had to go through some hardship and, and ultimately my partner who graciously needed some help uh, back in 2014 realized like, oh man, this is what I have a unique ability to do. And, and so I basically got to join as a, a 1099 contractor here and then work my way up into a partnership role. Um, I had to go find that too. Versus what do most people do uh, or at least from in my sphere of relationship, most people, organizations or individuals that I work with, they work a job they don't really love, but they get the money they need to live or to have enough vacations or to do things. I, I literally had a conversation with an executive team member, and admittedly, this, this gal is closer to retirement, but she literally shared with me on an executive leadership team of a large organization, I only work so I can take vacations now. And so it was not the time or place for me to be asking some clarifying questions, but if that is your only driver, you're basically telling me that you're not fully bought into the organization value. You're not, you're not training and equipping and leading and engaging and empowering others. So the, the, the long response to this, so the short is there's too many people that are dissatisfied, unhappy, they don't, they don't know um, why they're doing what they're doing outside of a paycheck. Certainly not everybody, but there's a number of people out there like that. Um, just look at employee satisfaction surveys, like big picture, jump on <clears throat> some of the different um, sites that, you know, go, go to Glassdoor, go, go to different places. You'll start to see that if you don't feel that already. But I think the big picture is this. <clears throat> the reason that you need to figure these things out is I want to take us back again uh, Let's go to the Industrial Revolution. In fact, let's just, let's just go back to the early 1900s. If you think about the early 1900s, what was the most important? It was our IQ. How smart are you? 
Do you swing the hammer when you're told to swing the hammer? Do you take a break when your manager tells you it's break time? It was basically this, can you do what you're told? Move forward 80-ish years or so, and we started to see this movement of EQ. What's your emotional intelligence? Do you know how you feel? Do you know how your coworkers feel? Do you know the difference between that? Do you care? <clears throat> I really see now we're living in this day and age where it's not just IQ and it's not just EQ. It's actually CQ. It's our collaborative intelligence. Do you know how to work with people that aren't like you? Can you collaborate with people that have different worldviews, that they're different time zones than you? Why is that? Information is practically free everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Uh, we have Khan Academy. We have YouTube. We have all these different places. Uh, the other thing is we can outsource just about anything. Now, it doesn't mean you should, but you can. Uh, and so we're starting to see this. We're kind of on the, the beginning crest of this new world where we're starting to integrate. You know, we see a lot of AI being discussed even in commercials now and some of those different things. <clears throat> um, I believe in a decade from now, so late 2020s, early 2030s, we're going to progress again because we keep progressing quicker and quicker and quicker. So we're going to need IQ, we're going to need EQ, we're going to need our CQ, but it's actually going to be uh, what our firm calls the collaborative intelligence multiplication, where I need to not just figure out how to lead myself well, I've got to figure out how to lead my colleagues well my subordinates, my, I need to even learn how to lead up the chain of command well. So it's, it's, I think this is one of the big things that's missing in this current day and age is, unfortunately, there are lots of Facebook ads and lots of uh, different marketing out there that says, build your platform and figure out what you need to do. And, and you see all these guys in their mansions, one of which, uh, if I shared the name, probably everybody would know. I, I just learned from a friend who knows him uh, that when he was doing his videos, he, he, he's renting and leasing uh, a mansion and leasing these Lamborghinis to do yeah. this stuff, which is like, okay, so you're really put on a front. Yeah. It's not going to be just about yourself. You have to pause and you have to figure out how can I lead others well? How do I, how do I engage them and empower them and equip them? And we really are tapping into an abundance mindset. And if you can do that, if you can lead yourself and you can lead others well, and you can do that succinctly and you can start to, you can multiply your collaborative intelligence and your leadership intelligence, then you're actually going to be more valuable in the workplace. You can't just automate that. You can't just put code into robotics and they're going to do that. So actually it ends up being a um, self-preservation mode, but with a helpful tint to it because I'm working to help others in the process. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So the tie-in really is we need to put in the time and it doesn't have to be blocking off a day or a week to figure out this purpose, vision, value, mission, but if we want to stay relevant and, and I think a lot of folks have invested in trying to grow their EQ yeah, that's right. and lots of books on that topic, um, but if we really want to stay relevant with the trend moving towards collaborative intelligence, we got to put in this, this work, this upfront investment, and really understanding what we need, what our style is, how we're going to impact, so that we can coll ultimately collaborate better uh, in the workplace. That's right. And take away. you're going to have fun doing it. I mean, this is what's so crazy is there's not a day that goes by, even, even my hardest days, 
at quote unquote work, they don't feel like work because I'm actually tapping into my uncommon advantage. Through, through my whole course of my job, I basically had all these different, I worked in the public sector, I worked in the private sector, I worked in the nonprofit world. The common denominator between all those things were basically coaching and leadership. And I just never, I never, I was too close to it. I was forced for the trees, right? I didn't connect those dots. And now because I did the time, and, and I think this is the thing I, I wanna really clarify. My intention is not to come across arrogant. I didn't do this on purpose. I did it very reactively. I'm very, very fortunate that I went through hard things and, and had some uh, great books that we read along the way, had some good people born to me and started to figure these things out. But once I, once I tapped into this and realized this, I'm doing what I love. And I, I know you well enough to say you would feel that same way. Now, work is work and it's difficult and it's hard and, and, and all those different components to it. However, we increase the likelihood of not just helping lead others well and train up others, but enjoying life, having a satisfaction that we are so grateful and we're so happy and it's authentic and it's real and it comes from a deep place in our, our, in our gut or our heart because too many of us for too long have worked jobs we don't love, but it pays just enough to make ends meet. How does one sort of assess their collaborative intelligence? That's a, that really, that's a really that's great question. I, <clears throat> so the way that we do this now, we're, we're actually working on developing a few, uh, few assessments for this. Uh, we have a particular assessment that is called the Talent Insights Assessment, and it basically clarifies your strengths and your blind spots. And it helps you then start to see the different other um, wirings of different folks. And so it starts to help you see, oh, this is why I typically get along with this people group better than, than this and so on and so forth. So <clears throat> there are, I would say, indirect ways you can start to assess that out. Um, I think the other thing is you have to have a high degree of awareness. So do you see yourself getting into the same disagreement or argument with the same person over and over and over? Um, there are tells that most of the time we just chalk it up to, oh man, this person I don't, you know, we, we just, we're like oil and water. Well, okay, let's start to tease it out and say why. Um, and so that's the long answer that there's ways we can do that. Is there a quick, succinct, short assessment? Not right now, to okay. my knowledge. If there is, I would love for somebody to respond and let us know. In development, it sounds like. Yes. Kind of switching gears again to a topic that you and I have spent quite a bit of time chatting with chatting about over the years and something that that uh, I think about a lot as I see folks kind of applying generalized advice and what I would call kind of fortune 500 mindset mm -hmm. uh, is this notion of optimize versus maximize yeah. and I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on that and where you see if you could kind of just speak to the differences and really for the for my audience, the, the, the socially conscious, sort of purpose-driven entrepreneur who isn't necessarily trying to build a billion-dollar business, they're trying to really play their game. Yeah, I think this is this is super important to, to understand and have the right kind of framework as the, as they go through life. And and the truth is, we should have been taught this in middle school or high school or uh, or certainly maybe even college. We hear regularly, you need to maximize. Yep. Maximize your time, maximize your energy, maximize your efforts. You have no busy maximizing your efforts or your time or your energy 
until you have first optimized. And, and that may seem counterintuitive, but, but hang with me. Let me paint a, a mental picture here, okay? Practically speaking, I want us to imagine a person running a marathon. And when I'm working with teams, I'll actually act this out for emphasis to help them see this. But I want you to imagine Forrest Gump. Okay. And I want you to imagine the, the moment in the movie where he's running and he's got the braces on his leg and he's pushing and eventually they start to fall off, right? One of the things that we, we see within that running pattern, if that is his style and he doesn't, he doesn't adjust and he doesn't you know, get the right gear, he doesn't get the right form, those different things, but just pushes hard and maximizes that style, particularly before the braces come off, can he run a marathon? Yes, he can. However, he is going to expend more energy. He's likely going to hurt his joints and his ligaments. He's likely going to create strain on his body that does not necessarily have to be there. If you have the right form and you have the right gear and you're doing things in the proper way, then actually you're going to optimize yourself that you'll actually make incremental growth. Then once you're, you're optimized in your form and your function, then go maximize. But we're too busy trying to maximize with the wrong clients. We're too busy trying to maximize with the wrong employees. We're too busy trying to maximize not having actually thought through what does this game even look like. And so we can potentially make some incremental growth, but we put far more strain on ourselves and increase the likelihood of not passing the test of time, not finishing the race, because we haven't paused and said, oh, wait a minute, am I optimized first? And so I think that's probably the easiest way to do it without being able to you know, have everybody here and trying to create a mental picture. We need to be, our, our form and our function needs to be correct. It needs to be precise. It needs to be at its top of the game and then focus your time, energy, and effort on maximization. Does that make sense? It does. That's awesome. Where I see it so often is in kind of the, what I would call uh, micro events of life, which is trying to negotiate with a vendor or trying to negotiate with uh, a new employee and trying to squeeze every single dollar and every mm -hmm. single single piece of output out of each employee and vendor and yeah that that's what you learn in business school I went to business school <laughs> right when you're a fortune 500 business you do that in this the, for for a variety of reasons uh, one is that your shareholders demand it yeah uh, but you're of a size and scale at that point where chances are you're the biggest yeah vendor. presumably you figured out your your form and function yeah right so you wouldn't absolutely. have gotten to that point had you not done that. That's right. Presumably. Yeah. There's some luck or some, that's right. some edge cases where maybe that's different. Uh, but chances are you're, the, you're one of, if not the biggest client for a lot of your vendors. Yeah. So as a result, there's, there's just a different scale at that size. That you're playing with. Whereas when you're a small business and you're working with vendors, uh, you're squeezing somebody else. Uh, maybe that you've just taken all the profit out of the that's relationship. Right. And, and you're sort of focused on maximizing. And really, we want to optimize, find the most efficient way forward. And at some point, then we can go back and renegotiate. Then we can tack on more responsibilities. Once we've already sort of uh, stabilized things, proof of concept, That's right. had momentum, all of those sort of things. That's exactly right. That's well said. Well, we could always just chat for hours and hours. In fact, we've, we've, I've seen us do it uh, before. Uh, 
any parting words, uh, key takeaways that you want to share? Yeah. Sort of summarize from your perspective what it means to rig the game, what you want people to take away from our conversation. If I had to summarize it into two quotes, I think it would be this, and you alluded to this earlier, Dan. I love Mike Tyson's manager who is at least um, tapped with saying this, but everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? Yeah. And I think that's the, the space where figure out your strengths, figure out your potential blind spots, figure out what your uncommon advantage is, figure out what the game looks like for you so that when you do get punched in the face, and you will, mm -hmm. you have a greater likelihood of some intestinal fortitude to pass that test, right? To, to stand and, and persist and be patient and move forward. And I think that's, that's, that's the maybe overarching thing. I think that the, the backside to that is a quote from Derek Sievers, which I love so much. And essentially he says, if only more information were the key or the issue, we'd all be billionaires with six pack abs. It's not more information, right. it's action. Yeah. And I think that's the key where today you've got to take action. Maybe, maybe there's a gem or two in here that, you, that resonate with you take that, mull it over, but then go apply it to life. Apply it to your personal life. Apply it to your professional life. Apply it to whatever your endeavors are. Start living proactively. Start thinking through, how do I make the most out of my 168 hours in a week? Because I first optimized. I know what my ideal week looks like. So we'll, we'll um, I, I absolutely want to set up the audience for when. Let's make some downloads available and, uh, and, and, and let's take action. If you don't get after it, yep. the likelihood of you succeeding is very, very, very small. That's awesome. And in the show notes, I'll make sure to link to all the resources that uh, Alan referenced. And, and maybe just to sort of end with, and I'll also include uh, links to how people can uh, get in touch with you and where you're at in social media and all that sort of stuff. But maybe it all sort of can be summed up in another Derek Sivers quote, which uh, is if you're not a if you're not a hell yeah about something, right. then it should probably be a no. And I think a lot of us are going through life saying yes to a lot of things that they're not a hell yeah to because they haven't put in the work to figure out what actually represents a hell yeah. That's right. To do that gut check. So uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing your wisdom and knowledge today, and uh, look forward to hopefully a part two in the future. Let's get after it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Rigging the Game podcast. You can find show notes and much, much more at www.riggingthegame.com. And remember, you get to set the rules for how you play this game of life. So if you make the rules, why not rig the game to win?